Well, you know those things that you did in childhood that you come to learn in adulthood are not exactly normal. I think we all have a few of those. Uh, I have one in particular that comes to mind. I have yet to meet any family that did what we did as a family when we had scare night. What we would do is we would turn off all the lights in the house and it would become pitch black. And me and my siblings, we would huddle together while we gave my dad a minute or two to go hide around the house. And then we would nervously walk the hallways of our house. As he comes around a corner and scares us half to death, we would be screaming like crazy. And then he would go somewhere else and do it again. And sometimes he would do the little eyelid flip, you know that creepy little thing people do? And he would have a flashlight and he would make all these creepy noises and we'd be screaming. Or he would run down the hall screaming, making us run down the hall and scream. I think we even had friends who came over and joined in on the fun with us. Our adrenaline was pumping and we loved it. But for as weird as that family activity was, and I've come to find out it is fairly weird, uh, can you imagine how much more weird it would be if we did that in the middle of the day? Like let's say 10 a.m. I'm walking down the hall and there comes my dad behind me with his eyelids flipped in a flashlight and making these creepy noises. I would look at my dad and think, probably have gone crazy, right? I'd be like, Dad, stop, don't do that. It just wouldn't have the same heart-pumping thrill. Why is that? What's the difference? I'm in the same home, I'm with the same safe people, and yet there is something drastically different about the night versus the day, the darkness versus the light. It's the same reason that you are more likely to be sure that you lock your door at night. And you may or may not do it during the day. It's the same reason that a noise might really bother you at night. It might scare you, and you wouldn't even be phased by it in the day. The same reason you don't feel comfortable walking to your car in a dark parking lot late at night. There's just something inherent about the fact that we know bad things happen in the dark, that darkness is often used as a cover for evil. And if that is true of literal darkness, it is that much more true of spiritual darkness. And that's exactly what we saw in the text that we studied this week. And as we look at it again this morning, We'll think about what does it mean to be living in the darkness so that we can make sure we never be found there. So if you're not there already, turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 5 through 10. And as you might remember, John just got done introducing himself and his message and the authority he has to speak about this message. And then he really gets into the meat of the message Let's look at it starting in verse 5. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. 
if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So let's unpack this passage verse by verse, starting with verse five. John says it as emphatically as he can. He says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It literally reads, God is light in him, there's no darkness, none. And there's many nuances in scripture to these concepts of light and darkness. Uh, just a few of them, light is often associated with life. John 8, 12, Jesus speaking, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's John 8, 12. Or it's sometimes associated with truth and knowledge. I'm sure a passage that would come to your mind is when it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then on the opposite end, that darkness would be that ignorance or that foolishness. It is also referring at times to God's glory. Revelation 21, 23, speaking of our eternal home, it says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. But here in 1 John, while it doesn't exclude those meanings, it especially has this emphasis on moral and ethical goodness. And we see that when we read verses six and seven, because it's talking about how we live, whether we're living the way that we should or shouldn't, whether we're living the right way, in the light or in the darkness. So it's really this moral, ethical goodness and perfection, um, or better said, everything that is good and perfect and right is so because it comes from who God is. He is the standard. He is the light. So when we think about God and his description at the outset of this passage, we can say that whatever we learn about God and about who he is and about how it should impact our lives, we can be confident that the standard that God's character set is devoid of anything evil, anything bad. It is absolutely always good. So the way I said it for point number one, we need to affirm that God's standard is always good. Always. It is good for us. It is good for our culture. It is good for those that we love. I mean, there should never be any question in our mind whatsoever. He is the starting point for all morality, and that is a good thing. And if we really let that soak in, that should make a major difference in our lives. I mean, of course, we know in our culture that morality is all over the place, all questioned everywhere. But to know that we can go to God and whatever he says, we know it to be good. It is light and there is no darkness in it at all whatsoever. When he says something is wrong, we can trust him. We can know that what he says is good. And I don't just mean you know, the big hot spots in our culture, the things that come to mind that make the news headlines. I'm thinking in our lives specifically. When we have that moment of decision where we're thinking, is God's standard 
really what I need to hold myself to. I mean, in this particular area, I don't know. Does it really matter that much if I do exactly what God says? You know, is that standard meant for me right now in this situation? And the answer is yes. Of course, it is God's standard we hold ourselves to, not the world's, not our neighbor's, not our friend's. I mean, God's standard trumps every other standard. If he says something is good to do, we should do it. If he says something is wrong to do, we should know that he is right. He is good. He knows what he's doing. And it's also such a comforting truth to really think about this. To think that we have a God who has unchanging standards that are absolutely good. That brings such comfort. Just thinking of the mess, you know, the mess the world is in, or maybe the mess that you feel like you're in, uh, where life is painful. Just things don't seem to be going as they should. But to know that God is in charge, and he is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The things you might fear, right? The things you fear about the future, or you just feel uneasy, to remind yourself that you've got God, and he is good. He is never worthy of blame when we're going through pain and things are bad in our lives. The bad does not come from him. We should not be blaming him in our hearts. And I even think of times when we wrestle with theological questions. I mean, some people are really plagued by thinking through these big concepts about Christianity, just really trying to understand, you know, pain and suffering and hell and God's sovereignty and all these big topics which are great to think through. And we can go round and round about these things. But in the end, to rest and say, though I don't have all the answers, the one thing I do know is that my God is good. And we should praise him more wholeheartedly as we think about this, to think that there is nothing not worthy of praise in him. Even the most painful aspect about this truth, about God being light, the way that it reveals darkness is a good thing. That's why John says in the Gospel of John, John 3, 19 through 20 says, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's what God's light does. It exposes the darkness. It exposes the evil. And those who are not Christians, they don't want that. They want to stay in the dark. They want to keep their lives hidden. But that's a non-Christian response. The Christian response is we welcome it. We want that light. We want that exposure. I was thinking about this when I was going through, still going through, this house problem that we have called mice. Um, I was opening up my dark pantry, and I thought I saw something scurry across the ground in the dark. And you know, I didn't really want to turn on the light. <laughs> Basically what I did is I turned on the light and then got on a chair <laughs> because I don't know what's gonna be there, I don't know what's gonna come at me, but I didn't, I didn't really wanna deal with it. So we put these you know, traps and whatnot in the pantry. Basically every morning I come into the dark pantry and I kinda brace myself as I go to turn on the light. Come to find out I am not crazy because we have caught Six, seven, I think probably the eighth one yesterday morning. These mice are all over the place. 
So the thing is, when the light exposes it, and when you think about God's light and what it exposes, it it exposes anything that's bad, right? Anything that's evil, anything that's not of the truth, anything that should not be there. And kind of like my experience in the pantry, sometimes we might want to brace ourselves because we don't initially want to see what God's light is going to reveal. It feels a little bit painful. But though we might wince a little, it is still so very good when God's light exposes the sin in our lives. And you might have mixed feelings about the mice situation. I know my girls do. They think it is so sad because these things are so cute, they say. They want to somehow get it out of the trap, give it a bath, and keep it. I have mixed feelings because I don't want to find the mice in the pantry because that means I have to deal with it. That means I somehow have to get it to the trash. Thankfully, my husband has been home every time, except for the one time he wasn't, and I paid one of my daughters to take it to the trash for me (laughs) because I did not want to deal with it. But the thing is, is it's not just that these things are gross, though they are. They are destructive little creatures. I had to look into this so that I could prove to my girls that I wasn't evil. I Googled it, how destructive mice are. And they are. They will eat through just about anything. They will eat through wires. They will eat through the insulation around the wires, possibly causing a fire hazard. Uh, They will eat through your food. There's so much food that I had to throw away because there's little chew marks in it or that it's broken apart or whatever. They bring diseases into your home. They can bring harmful bacteria into your home. They can even bring fleas into your home. These things are not cute right? There should be no mixed feelings about them being exposed and then them being caught. There should be definitely no mixed feelings about God's light exposing that which is bad in our lives and even catching us in it. It is a good thing when God's light reveals the darkness around us because sin is destructive. Sin destroys lives. It deceives people. It distracts people. It leads them down the wrong road. It might even seem cute for a second, but it is not cute. It is destructive. And so we should want, we should welcome God's light. Want as much of it as we can have. We should be hungry for God's light to be in our lives. Even that painful experience of seeing that God's righteousness is up here and I am down here and I am not meeting up, but that allows me to see what it is I need to do to change in my life, to become more like who he wants me to be. A great simple passage to memorize would be Psalm 119.68. Psalm 119.68 says, the psalmist talking about God, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So clear, but so profound. God, you are good. Your character is fully good. You do good. Everything that you do is good. And that should have an impact on my life. Like the psalmist, God, I want to know your statutes. I want to know how you want me to live. I want to be like who you want me to be according to his standard. And that's exactly what John was getting at with his readers, starting with verse five, speaking about God, and then the implications of that in verse six. 
Let's read that next verse in the passage. 1 John 1, 6, it says, If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So this is a correction that John is having to give where people were thinking that they could continue to live however they were living. They could continue to live in their sin, do what they wanted, and they could say that they have a relationship with God. They could still say that they have fellowship with God. And John is saying, that does not work. If you say that, you are lying. You are not living in accordance with the truth. Because it goes back to who God is. Because God is light. And if he is light and we say that we're close to him, that we have fellowship with him, then we should be wanting to walk in that light. And that's basically what verse 7 says. Let's read that next verse. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Having the blood of Jesus forgive them, being a part of the Christian community, right? Having a fellowship with one another. That belongs to, that's reserved for those who walk in the light. So the text really started with this concept that we need to affirm that God's standard is always good. But as we get to these verses, we see that what we really need is we need to live like we believe that. That's point number two. Live like you believe it. Do you really think God's ways are good? Do you really look at the light and say, yes, that is good? And if you do, it makes absolutely no sense to be walking towards the darkness. 1 Corinthians 6.14 asks a rhetorical question. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, What fellowship has light with darkness? And of course, the answer is none. Absolutely none. And the context there is talking about a Christian and a non-Christian being in close fellowship, working together. And it doesn't make sense for light to be working that closely with darkness. How much more so the holy, perfect creator of the universe with his creation and while he is light and they are living in the darkness. That just makes absolutely no sense. But to really get what John is talking about here, we have to start at the most basic level and think through, what does it really mean to be someone who is walking in the darkness? Because I'm thinking that very few people would think that they are walking in the darkness. I mean, kind of like literal darkness where you are in the dark but your eyes adjust. And all of a sudden, the darkness doesn't seem so dark to you anymore. And so it's always gonna seem like the darkness is reserved for those people, right? Uh, the evil people in society, the murderers, the adulterers, the people who do really crazy things, not the people probably who would even read First John. But to think that the darkness is really just that which does not come from the light. And if the standard that God sets is what makes the light, then it's actually pretty easy to find that we are not in the light. I mean, it is for the kind of people that would be reading the book of 1 John. It's not just for those evil outsiders. Picture a beam of light, one of those massive spotlights that you've seen. You can see that light. You can see the effects of that light. You can even get really close to that light. 
But until you actually step inside of the beam of light, you are still in the darkness. You have to step into it. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. It's Ephesians 5, 8. At one time you were in darkness. All of us, all of us started there in the darkness, no matter how socially acceptable our darkness looked. And a life of darkness is simply living by our own standards or living by the world's standards, but not living by God's standards. It's living for ourselves, and that comes out in all kinds of ways. It's living a life that is unexposed to the light. And that's what makes the darkness appealing. It's hard to be in the light sometimes. It's hard to have our sin exposed for us to see that we're not meeting up to the standard, to see that there is a higher standard. But the reality is, if you stay in that darkness that you started in, the text says you don't have fellowship with God. And as tough as a biblical truth that is, it really is quite logical, quite simple. Uh, I, thinking of math, I'm doing a bunch of math these days with my girls. They're all school-aged. And so there's a lot of X's and Y's going around. And so just think, you know, if the math problem said, if those who belong to God live like X and you live like Y, then you do not belong to X. I mean, it really is that simple. Or maybe math isn't your thing. Think everyday examples. Let's say you call yourself a vegetarian. But every time I see you, you have a pile of meat on your plate. I'm going to say, come on, that's not you. Or you call yourself a reader. And you're like, yeah, I'm such a reader. But the thing is, you never read a book. You say you have no time to read books, and really, you're just not that interested in reading a book. You probably shouldn't call yourself a reader. You can become a reader, but you should read a book before you call yourself a reader. But then maybe you'll say, but I used to be a vegetarian, right? Uh, like five, ten years ago, I did it for a while, and it was so good. I felt so good, so I was one. Or... I was a reader, right? Back in college, I devoured books. I had like a chapter book a week, and I was just going through dozens and dozens of books. The thing is, it's not about who you used to be. It's about who you are. And if you say you have fellowship with God, that you have a relationship with God, that you've been forgiven by God, that you are of the light, then it should show it is not about who you used to be. It's about who you are. And it's actually a really huge claim to make. To say, I have fellowship with God. The God of this universe. The God who is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we are going to make such a huge claim, it should make a huge impact on our lives. And we have got to understand this truth. We've got to examine our lives by this truth. But in all likelihood, many of us here, we do understand this. We do affirm that God's ways are absolutely good. And we do 
live like we believe it, but we have those times in which we don't. We have those moments in which we fail. It's not a lifestyle, but it is there. It's like we're walking in that massive beam of light. We're in the middle of it, and we are walking towards the source of light, and we're so glad we're here. This is where we want to be. But every once in a while, it's like we kind of want to stick our head out of that beam of light. It just looks a little easier out there. There's something in the darkness that just has a little bit of appeal, even in the sense that maybe it's just easier. Or we're walking along and we just kind of want to stick our hand out there and you know, just compromise just a little bit. We're walking in the light, but that would just be easier if I could just grab onto that. And we're in that moment of temptation where we want to stick our head out or our hand out. That's a moment of decision. It's when we need the wisdom we see in Romans 13. If you want to turn there real quick, you can, or you can just listen. Romans chapter 13, it talks about how we need to cast off the temptation like we would this nasty piece of clothing that we want nothing to do with. Romans chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 12 through 14. It says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Right? Those are the things of the darkness. They don't make sense anymore. But verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If we are in the light, that stuff makes no sense anymore. The stuff of our pre-Christian days, the stuff of living for ourselves, we want to cast that off, be completely done with it. Make no provision for the flesh, right? Not even feed it a tiny bit. That means as we're walking in the light, we don't even want to stick our pinky finger out of it. We don't want to stick our toe out of it. We want to stay in the middle of the light as much as we can. So when we have that ungodly motivation, we cast it off as soon as we notice it. We're starting to dwell on those thoughts that we shouldn't be having and we know it. We throw it off. That show we're tempted to watch, we turn it off. That Those words we should not say, that way we should not respond to our husband or kids, we cast it off, we're done. But not just throw it all off, but it says put on the armor of light. Romans 13, 12, put on the armor of light, the armor of truth and righteousness and godliness and holiness, all those things that we know that God wants us to be. Like a soldier going into battle fighting to live righteously. It says we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So through his power, we're wanting to live like him, like he would want us to, doing whatever it is he would ask us to do. I mean, that is what is living in the light, seeing who God is and wanting to live in whatever would most mirror his character, what is in keeping most with that light, where you have people who, who would know about God. Uh, they, they know about what God's about and who he's about, what his priorities are, and they would look at your life and they would say, yeah, that makes sense. She is of the light. She matches that. That is logical. It makes sense. And of course, this living in the light, walking in the light, is not in any way a walk in the park. Because the darkness is constantly there, 
and it's gonna keep calling our names. I mean, it can't bring us down, but it can keep tempting us to just stick out our hand a little bit, to just compromise a little bit. And that's when we need to go back to the beginning and think about God's standard, how good it is. It is far better for us to live in the light than in the darkness. Like Ephesians 5, 8 through 9 says, Ephesians 5, 8 through 9, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. It is worth it to be walking in the light. Let's live like we believe it. But that's not to say that in our quest to live in the light, to live by God's standard, that we won't mess up. In fact, in verse 8 of 1 John, John makes that clear, that you will, you will mess up. If you're not back in our text, let's go back there. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, John is going to address another area that needs correction. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So really, there's these different extremes that John is dealing with. Uh, in verse 6, people were saying about sin, you know, sin, mm, it's not that big of a deal, right? You can continue to live in sin and still call yourself a Christian, that you have a relationship with God. In verse 8, people are saying more like sin, what sin? You know, I don't even have any sin. And so he corrected the first one by saying it does matter, right? Sin matters. You need to ditch sin and live in the light the way God wants you to. And as he gets to this correction, he's saying, yes, you're supposed to live in the light, but clearly you're going to mess up. And that's why he says in verse 9, let's read it. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we should praise God for this truth. Because if you've been living any number of years in the light, you know that you need God's mercy. That you are going to mess up regularly. Though you're seeking to live by God's standard, you're gonna fall. And what God wants you to do is he says, you know, recognize your sin, admit your sin, confess your sin, and then I will forgive you. Point number three, seek forgiveness when you mess up. Because God not only offers forgiveness, but he wants us to take it. He wants us to see our sin. He wants us to confess our sin. And then he wants us to trust him that he will forgive us. And if we're missing any one of those components, we are missing out on the true power and beauty of verse 9. So first we need to see our sin. I'm thinking most of us are not, we're far away from what they were saying, where they're like, sin, I don't even have any sin. I think we know we have sin. But are we deceived into thinking we don't have as much sin, or we are meeting God's standard more than we are? Are we as honest with ourselves as we ought to be? Maybe giving ourselves grace in certain areas. Like this area, well, it's just harder for me because of my situation. We need to be honest with ourselves in how much we are falling short of God's standard. 
and I'm sure we all have blind spots. We all have these areas where we think that we're following after God wholeheartedly, but we have these areas that we have yet to see. So for all of us, the best starting point is to just say, God, show me my sin. I want to see it. I want to know that it's there. And I know this is painful. The times I have done it by the end of the week, I am so humbled. Like, oh man, I got so much sin to deal with. But the thing is, it's not like it wasn't there before. It's not like it just appeared because I prayed about it. It's always been there. It's just that I didn't see it. So let's ask God, show us what that sin is so that we can agree with you, we can admit it, and we can confess it. So then we confess our sins, agreeing with God that it is not meeting his standard and it's wrong. Psalm 38, 18 says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. That's Psalm 38, 18. And we know that feeling of being sorry. I'm just so sorry I did it. I wish I didn't. And we say that to God, asking for his forgiveness, wanting to forsake that sin. And no sin is too small to confess, right? It doesn't, no one even has to see it for it to be confessible. It's just that idea that you are seeking to walk in the light and you are doing things or saying things or thinking things that are not in keeping with that light. And you see it, you recognize it, you confess it. And no need to rack up a hundred of them, right? As it's often said, keep short accounts with God. Confess it when you see it. Take time to confess regularly, maybe even daily. Just spend that time talking to God about the sin that you see in your life. And why would we not? For whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, Proverbs 28, 13 says. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And that's where a lot of us seem to struggle in those last three words, trusting that we will obtain mercy. I don't know if we question it because we personally hold grudges. And so we assume that God must be holding grudges. But God's going to do what he said. It says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means he doesn't forgive sins flippantly. It means he doesn't forgive sins according to how much he feels like forgiving. He forgives because of who he is, because he is faithful, because he is just. He said that he would forgive our sins, and he is faithful. He said that he justly already paid for our sins. He took our sins seriously. He took it to the cross. And that's why verse 10 has such strong words. Let's read that final verse in the passage. 1 John 1.10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So if you're denying you have sin, that's what they were doing. They're denying they even had sin. That means they were not only lying, but they were making it as if God was lying. Because we have God who said that all have sinned. God said that he needed to pour out his wrath on mankind because of sin. He came to die for our sin. He says that you should confess your sin. It's a big deal to God because he says, you have sin. I have dealt with it. And if you come to me and deal with it as I tell you to, if you confess your sins, I will forgive you. And we got to take him at his word. You need to confess it 
and then fully appreciate the forgiveness that he offers. And then at that point, you no longer have you know, any of those hidden skeletons in your closet. But in terms of a closet, think of it as your closet gets fully cleaned and fully dusted. That sounds like a pretty good thing. But how much more your soul? Your soul gets fully cleaned and dusted in a sense. I mean, we should bask in our forgiveness. That verb bask, uh, I think it's used mostly when we think of like summer vacation in the tropics, right? When someone is basking in the sunshine, they're laying out by the pool, they are delighting in it, relishing it, enjoying it, they are appreciating it. And what is better than having our sins completely forgiven, being completely cleansed on the inside, and to know that when we mess up, because though we don't want to, we know that we will, that we have a God who is merciful, that says, come to me, confess your sins, and I will forgive you completely. That is something to soak in, right? To revel in, to enjoy, to appreciate, to bask in. So take the time to genuinely confess your sins this week and every week, to really appreciate the gift of complete forgiveness. There's actually so much to appreciate in this passage. When we first read it, a lot of the attention goes on the correctives that John is giving, and he's really calling them out quite a bit. He's saying, if you go down this road and you're thinking these kind of thoughts, you're a liar, you're a deceiver, and you're not even of the truth. I mean, these are some serious considerations for them and even for us as we read this text. We gotta make sure we are thinking right along these lines. But just for a moment, I want us to focus on the sweet, sweet truths in this text. Yes, it's not good if we don't see our sin. It's not good if we continue to live in our sin. But listen to how good it is on the other side. Um, I'm going to read verses 5, 7, and 9, describing the promises applicable to the Christian. Verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, And in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those are some good promises. Praise God for his perfect light, his standard that helps us live, the fellowship of his people, the blood of Jesus, complete cleansing and forgiveness. I mean, this is a road that we should all gladly walk. One final passage that sums it up well, 1 Peter 2.9. Peter is talking about living a life that is set apart, a life that is in the light and how good it is. So he says in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A marvelous light it is. Let's walk in it a little bit better this week. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for who you are, how good it is to just think about your character. There's nothing in life that we know that is like you. Where you are light and in you there is no darkness at all. And we're hungry for that. We want that. God, I pray that we would praise you more, that that truth would comfort us, that it would direct us and guide us. I pray, Lord, that the way your character even brings out the sin in our life, as painful as that is, that we would welcome it, that we would want it. We truly want to see how we don't meet up so that we can, because we want to please you. We want to live in the light because we know that's the very best place to be. And God, I pray that you would help us to see our sin and confess it often, quickly. I pray that we would and that we would bask in our forgiveness, that we wouldn't doubt that you truly forgive us. You say that you do and you're faithful and just, and we thank you for that. We thank you for what you did on the cross to take care of our sins. Lord, I pray that this text would change our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.